Okay, friends, good morning. I'm going to look at each of you in the eye. Thank you. Paul here, he, he's walking through Corinthians. We've been walking through it. He's toward the end of the book, and we've been in the gifts for some time. We've hit these texts that are difficult about women, but it turns out they're really rich and liberating in a lot of ways. Paul sees distinctions, but uh, we are one in Christ, and uh, all the rights that women and minorities have essentially in the West have come out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, much to, much to uh, our misunderstanding. We, we think it's the opposite, but that's not the case. So we've kind of gone through um, all that, and now we're here. Paul pre- preached a lights-out sermon last week on the resurrection, and we're camping out here again. That was a big chunk. We got through most of the trunk of what Paul has to say. This is one of the, uh, the spotlights par excellence on the resurrection, just a bunch of resurrection theology and truth here in the New Testament and in the Bible, in fact. So he, we, we're hitting a bunch of that and biting off a big bite this morning. We have that next week, and then we're going to finish um, two weeks from now. So it's been a good ride. It's been a hard book, but it's been a really good book. Paul here, he is a very educated person. He, I was reminded of that studying this text this week when he, just in reading it, and he says, um, he says that, let me find it here. Uh, if, if, if the dead are not raised, uh, why have I been suffering as I do? Thinking that there's going to be life after death, thinking that I'm making these investments when they're not going to be, there's no, there's going to be no yield. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he's quoting just a, a poet, not necessarily a minor poet, but a poet from a few centuries before a Grecian classical poet, now classical, uh, wrote a bunch of hundreds of comedies, and so, but Paul's a Hebrew and a Jew, but he's, he's really, and he does this again. So he's writing to the Corinthians here. When he's in Athens, he, he quotes a couple minor Greek poets just as extemporary, as he's speaking at Mars Hill in Athens. He just goes ahead and it's in there. It's downloaded. So he's a classicist. He's a Hebraist. He sat under one of the premier teachers in Israel, Gamaliel. Um, he mentions him somewhere else in one of his letters. Um, and so he had massive chunks of the entire Hebrew Bible or Old Testament to us, just memorized. He was a scholar in that sense too. So he knew his Greek, he knew his classics. He was well-educated roundly around the Mediterranean. He had his people's uh, text essentially memorized. He was a scholar there. He was a Roman citizen. He was no bumpkin. He was, he was no bumpkin. This is a guy that never watched a bit of TV. He was well-schooled in almost every way you can think of. He was a thinker. Um, and he was a doer. He was throwing people in prison left and right before he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And, and yet, so none of, none of his learning changed him, um, but it all got activated when he encountered the risen and resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And so I think really that's, that's what this huge text that we're not gonna be able to even begin really to drill down into uh, tells us is that the risen Christ changes. For Paul, and he's saying for you, for every single person, the risen Christ is a game changer. He changes absolutely everything. So three points this morning, no surprise. Um, what is at stake, what it means, and what it looks like? What is at stake what it means and what it looks like. And I think, let me just back up, one of the reasons I wanted to start off by saying Paul was no fool, he was no bumpkin, he was well-educated, and his, his logic is razor sharp, is this. I think a lot of times when we read about the resurrection, maybe even as being a key piece to understanding anything and having any meaning in life, we can kind of think, yeah, for the ancients, because they were credulous. Paul was no credulous fool. He applied, I think he is more logical than most people that we encounter today. 
perhaps than most of us in the way he lived and looked at the resurrection. So I want you to just to give him that credence even just for the next 30 minutes as we, as we roll through this text. Okay, so the risen Christ changed everything for Paul and really does for us too. So what's at stake? That's really the first block of verses, verses 12 through 19. Um, if Paul says very clearly, and I noticed when Austin read through it, this is how I read through it too, to myself. When he read through verses 12 through 19, it's almost like you're in mud because you're like, he's kind of saying the same thing over and over again. Austin kind of slowed down. If there's no resurrection, um, Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then Paul goes through a few things that are just logically facts, okay? He says, if Christ is not raised, one, your preaching, our preaching is absolutely worthless. What was called Paul preaching? A gospel, good news. What, what good news is it if it ends with um, this guy that we're worshiping died on a Roman cross, period, end of story. That's terrible news, okay? So your preaching is totally worthless. It's no longer the gospel, which means good news. Um, our faith is worth, he goes from sort of that to this, our faith is worthless. Why? Why, what good is trust in someone who's dead? If he's not alive now, what good is that? Why did he die on the cross? There was no validation of that. He's not alive now to know. He didn't rise proving that he was who he said he was, the very son of God, okay? So our, your faith is worthless, faith in a dead man, worthless. And then he goes on and says that again. So if he's like, your preaching is worthless, our faith is worthless, okay? And then he says, your faith is worthless again. And then he pulls out and says, hey, in fact, and he finishes with this, if Christ was not, if there's no resurrection, then Christ wouldn't raise. And if Christ wouldn't raised, what? And Austin kind of paused here rightly, you're still in your sins. Man, that's worth pausing on ourselves. You and I, if Christ was not in fact raised bodily, not according to your hopes or aspirations or hey, he was a good guy or I believe that in spirit he was raised, whatever that means. If he didn't rise from the dead as the same man, as a glorified man with the same body but a glorified body, if there wasn't continuity there and he didn't leave our sins in the ground and defeat death, then we're still in our sins, okay? So in other words, what Paul's saying is something he says elsewhere. At the end of Romans 4, he says, why was Christ crucified? He said, he was, he was crucified for your sins and mine, not for himself. He died to pay for your sins. When you look at the cross, one of the things you see is how evil you are and how evil I am. That's what it took to make us right before God. That was the payment required. And that's how much, it also shows us how much he loves us that he took that in our place. But what his resurrection does, Paul goes on to say in Romans 4.25, he died for our sins, but he was raised, what? Romans 4.25, complete it for me. He was raised for our justification. I heard that glorious word from someone. He was raised because God put his stamp of approval on the payment Christ offered for everything you owe to him through your sin and rebellion. His resurrection shows that God the Father said, it is enough. His words on the cross were true. It was truly finished at the cross. If you continue to try to pay for any sin, having trusted in Christ, what you are saying is his payment was not enough and you are calling him a liar. Stop it. Can I just say stop it? Can I say stop it again? His payment was enough. He is enough. He has made you, if you have trusted in him, he has made you clean. He has justified you, which Paul, the word there means he has made you right. What does that mean? As right as whom? As right as he is with God the Father. The eternal son, pure and perfect, sinless. That's how right you are. 
when you deposit yourself by faith into his identity and the spirit takes us right there into the heart of God, okay? These are the beautiful, sublime truths that Paul talks about here and elsewhere and he's just touching on that and he's saying, look, if, there, if Christ didn't rise, the father never validated his payment for you and you are still in your sins and your sins still identify you and they will still take you down all the way down to hell where he went for you. But guess what? He didn't stay there. He rose to prove that we are free. Okay, so his resurrection for Paul, it's everything and it's everything for us. When you buy a house, the mortgage company hands you the keys and all that needs to be done is done in a sense. Now forget the whole, you have to keep paying for the rest of your life, forget that part. Act like that doesn't, doesn't, let's just say if somebody pays for the house in full, when you get the keys, the house is yours, okay? Christ has paid for the house. The resurrection is God giving you the keys and saying it's yours. Relationship with me, it's yours. Freedom from sin, from the power of sin. You no longer have to sin, it's yours. Peace is yours. Beautiful. Without that, though, we're, we're lost. Um, and this is, I'm gonna get in a little bit to what sort of Paul was seeing in Corinth, which is why he hammers here at the end of this letter on the resurrection. No resurrection leads to license. So instead of liberty, which our country has a huge, and I would say in the West, misunderstanding of what, what is true freedom. That's a watchword, freedom, liberty. We think it's license, the ability to do whatever the heck we wanna do. That's not the biblical picture of freedom at, at all. Not even from the start. From start to finish, it is obedience to God. In Genesis, we wonder, because of our misunderstanding of freedom, we wonder why did God give a law to be obeyed? You can eat from any tree. There's total freedom. There's total, indul- just indulge in any, any of my good creation. You're masters of it. In- enjoy it. There's just one thing. Don't touch that. Excuse me, don't eat from that tree. Eve makes the mistake of saying, and he told us not to touch it too, that's not true. She added to God's command, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. His command was straight, simple, and perfect. And he said, just don't eat from this tree. Obedience to God is part, here's the thing I'm trying to tell you. Obedience to God is part of your freedom from the start. In a perfect creation before sin. It's not a consequence of sin. We're made to obey a good father who loves us. Just like our children are made to obey their parents who love them and are looking out for their best. It's our key to life. But, but no resurrection, if you look in verse 32, what Paul really, and I'm gonna kind of skip over that section because it's sort of a rehash of this section and for time it leads to living however we want to. And the Corinthians, some of them have begun to disbelieve in the, just the bodily resurrection on the return of Christ. And so because of that, they were living it up and living how they wanted to. If you don't think there are gonna be consequences, if there's no resurrection and when I die, I die and that's it, and there's no next life in the body, then there are no repercussions for how I live now. And so you just, one of the ways you can do that is just to license, just live it up because there's no lasting consequence to my actions. But it can also lead to thinkers, to people who think through things, a lot of you do. It can also lead to despair and hopelessness. Um, Because if this life is truly all there is and there's no bodily resurrection, there's no continuity, then um, really, if you stop to think about it, all the meaning that there seems to be in this life, a beautiful sunset, a loving relationship, a child, um, a a simple flower along a garden path, and on and on we could go, is totally meaningless. Not only is your faith 
worthless and meaningless? Is our preaching worthless and meaningless? Everything, you can extrapolate logically. Everything is meaningless if the end is death, worms, dirt. So it can also lead to hopelessness. Um, but there's a deep, it can also lead to irrationality from that. There's a deep irrationality, I want to pause it, and I think a lot of us sense this at the heart of our culture right now. Because we, you have very few people now who are saying there is no meaning, but they don't have a construct that allows for it because they don't have a view, they don't have a metaphysic, a philosophy, a theology of life after death, of a bodily resurrection. And so the end is, it's a cold death in the dirt, but yet we, we continue to talk as if there's meaning. But actually Paul says, no, everything is worthless, empty, and futile if the end is the grave, six feet under, and that's the end of the story. Think about it. It might feel nice, it might feel like there's meaning, and it feels that way because there is. But if you don't believe in a bodily resurrection, there's no logical support for it at all, at all. Um, And we need to press people on that. We need to press people on saying, you are right when you sense that there is meaning, but do you have a basis for it? Paul does, Christianity does. The Bible does. It's hope. It's good news. But friend, you have to line up what you know to be true with a, a construct that supports that. Um, Cornelius Van Til was a 20th century uh, Christian philosopher, theologian. He was Dutch and he came to America and he taught at Westminster up in Philly for decades. And one of the things he says, he argued for the, the tenets of the Christian faith and the truth of the Christian faith. And one of his catch lines that's so great was that atheism, excuse me, atheism stands on the floorboards of theism. So atheism depends for any meaning at all in its argument against God on assumptions that require an infinite, intelligent, even multipersonal being. Uh, The fact that you atheists are arguing with me right now um, and using words that you're purporting to have meaning requires there to be a creator. Otherwise, it's just energy, and why should I trust the atoms bouncing around in your head and coming out of your mouth? It's just randomness. It's absolute randomness. If, you, if there's no distinction between you and the dirt, I might as well just listen to dirt and take philosophy lessons from that. Seriously, there's no underpinning for it. So we have to lovingly, we have to lovingly help people. You're not gonna argue someone into the kingdom, but to help take the roof off to see we all have assumptions, is there something that supports your assumptions? You are right that there is meaning, but the fact that you believe and know God you have nothing to stand on. You're actually standing on the floorboards of theism of assuming there's a God and there is a God and his name is Jesus Christ and he has died for you and he has risen, okay? Um, I talked about the absurdity and the irrationality. We saw this a few decades ago, especially with the movement of French existentialism. There were some philosophers like um, Camus and Sartre who, who really sort of, embraced this idea that there is no meaning, but we have to, we can't live consonant with, we can't live consistent with the fact that there's no meaning, okay? Because they deny that there was a God. And so there's, if there's no infinite and fixed reference point, God, all the other points are just random and have no meaning, okay? And so we are, Sartre said, we are staring into a black, yawning chas- chasm or void of nothingness. There is no meaning, but we have to put a brave face on it and sound our barbaric yelp from the rooftops of the world, as it were. That's a Whitman. That's not Sartre. That's a, that's a Walt Whitman quote. Um, but basically, we have to look into the black void of nothingness and just put a brave face on it. Is that, that's, a, that's a despairing and an absurd position. Um, 
but he, he, that's what he felt was the case. And so you can't live consistent with, um, with saying that there's no God, with saying that there's no resurrection, there's no meaning. Camus, his philosophy became uh, known as absurdism. And it is absurd. That's a great way to put it in a word. It's absurd to say there's meaning and yet there's no resurrection from the dead. So Paul, and again, I can't, I wait, hey, this is a whole semester course plus. You know, I can't, I can't press into it as much as I want to. Um, there was a seminary professor. I was in a, I was attended a debate with, and I was on a panel afterwards with him. And he said something to the effect of, to the, these seekers, presumably, death unites us all. It was about heaven and hell. And he said, death unites us all. It gives us something in common. It makes us human. So let's be kind to each other. Kind of like death is the good thing that unites us, kumbaya is kind of the tone he was giving. And, and, and what Paul says to that is hogwash, absolute hogwash. Um, death is not, death unites us, but it's because of the curse and because of our sin. Um, it's not good at all. And I wanted to say to that, and I, di- I didn't, and it's probably good that I didn't, but I wanted to say to that seminary professor, even elephants know better, sir. Even elephants know better. Because apparently elephants, when one of their, is it a pride, a herd, die, when one of their herd dies, they mourn their dead. They have a mourning ritual. Even elephants know that death is not natural. It's not supposed to be that way. But we in our culture have kind of convinced ourselves that it is natural. Um, it doesn't unite us. Rather, like C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, that's my wife's favorite C.S. Lewis book that she's read, he talks about death um, being separated from God in hell as he pictures it as people just, they start close together in hell and then they, by their own choice and their own behavior and their own insides coming out, propel themselves farther and farther away from each other until there's just total isolation, darkness, no community at all. So what we taste here is a bit of the resurrection life that we have in Christ in our community. Um, but it's, it, death doesn't unite us. It actually, it literally separates skin from bone teeth from hair from skull and that's a picture of what it does forever the bible talks about it as essentially being eternally undone you are eternally as as a a creature with an infinite soul death will just unravel you forever the resurrection is the opposite it reconstitutes you and makes you what you were created to be okay and christ was unraveled in your place undone on the cross the wrath of god having been poured out on him, which is why he cried out in your place so you could be made whole. And here I am preaching the gospel uh, in the first point here. So you know I'm about to get to it more in the second. Um, But our culture agrees with that seminary professor. It talks about death as something we ought to embrace, a natural process. Um, But then we have a poem, we have something like the Dylan Thomas poem, um, the Irish, I believe, poet of, of last century who said, um, do not go gentle into that good night. That was his poem. And it has a haunting refrain, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And that resonates with us because there's something in us that know with the elephants that death, if death is the end, then nothing has any meaning. Um, and so death, rather than being a friend, and what does he call it in verse 26? He calls it the last enemy that Christ has defeated and will finally and consummately put away in defeat when he comes again. But he struck the decisive blow at death on that cross, dying in our place. Um, So what can be done? It gets worse. Not only do we die, but as I sort of intimated, and as we know, everything dies. uh, Biophysicists show us 
that um, the whole universe is dying. There's a red, what they call a red shift, which is red is what happens to light when, it, when, it's, when it's going farther and farther away from us. So the universe is expanding, it's cooling, and one day it will die a heat death and everything will go cold. Everything, not just you, everything in the universe. Um, and if that's the end, then there is, there is literally no meaning. So in our culture, because we have lost sort of that transcendent frame and a belief in the bodily resurrection, we, uh, but we know that there's meaning, there's this irrationality that we don't want to address. And so we, we binge on Netflix and we are super busy and distracted more than probably any other culture in the world. And what we're doing is we're just suppressing uh, that irrationality because we're not wanting to think about it by staying busy, okay? Um, I was reading a New York Times article in February uh, it says, death is, after all, the greatest of existential pains. Everything one achieves in life, even love, occurs in an express train racing toward death, Cocteau observed. He says, to smoke opium, it's a, it was about opium and the opium epidemic. To smoke opium is to get out of the train while it's still moving. It's to con- concern oneself with something other than life or death. So for, for this person, he's saying, look, our culture has gotten to the point where there is no transcendence. There's just this, this imminent frame. And if that's true, then I can't get off the express train racing toward death. And so all I can do is distract myself. And opium does that for me for a while. Okay? So let's move on briefly to what it means, verses 20 through 28. Verses 29 through 34 just kind of reiterate what we just went over. So I'm, I'm not going to focus on those. But verses 20 through 28, what does the resurrection from the dead because of what Christ has done mean? Um, first of all, let me, a little bit more background. Death, again, opposed to our culture. The Bible says clearly that death is not original to creation. It's not part of the way God designed things. It's unnatural. Um, it's a consequence of sin. It came into the world once sin came into the world. Once God's creatures, man and woman, rebelled from him, death came. Death is empirical proof that sin is, is the problem for us that divides us, that keeps us from God. Death ruins God's good creation. It is an enemy. But the gospel is simply this. It's not simply this. It's more than this, and I'll get into that in a second. But the gospel is that God came into our death and the ruin that our sin had made of creation and he wore it like a garment. He wrapped it around himself on the cross and he crucified it and he buried it and then he rose and he left it dead in the ground. The fact is that he conquered death. Here's the gospel. God in his genius and infinite love for you killed death by dying. He jumped on the, on the grenade for us. Um, John, Owens, uh, John Owen was a I mean, 17th century Puritan. He had a great sermon entitled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. What a great, what a great title. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. If death is a bee that stung Christ, uh, it in, inflicted a serious wound on him, but that bee died. It, it, st- it stung the wrong dude. He left it in the ground dead and he rose to a new kind of life, okay? That gives meaning to anyone who looks to him, okay? Christ killed, killing Christ killed death. That's Paul's point, okay? And his resurrection is the whisper of that promise, not just to remake you and reconstitute you and give you a bodily life that will never end, but, but 
you are the, he was the first fruits of the fact that the same, his resurrection, his bodily resurrection from death, after you die, if you've looked to him, the same will happen to you when he returns. But then when that happens to you, he says elsewhere in Romans, uh, all of creation will be reborn as it were, reconstituted, resurrected with death and sin and pain gone. All that alien stuff that was killing God's creation, gone. So his resurrection is the whisper of the promise that he will remake the worlds. Um, and it's in all the stories. The, it's in so many stories of the ancients. I'm not gonna go through it now for the sake of time. Um, but what Paul does touch on briefly, and I wanna touch on briefly, verses 21 through 22, he also goes to the fact that not only did Christ in his resurrection prove that his payment for your sin was, was accepted by God. Not only did he take death down and leave it in the grave um, and become the first fruit of a new creation untainted by death, but he also goes and talks about sort of how that happened with regard to Adam and how we, because we all came, literally we all came biologically from Adam, physically from Adam. Um, when he rebelled against God, death came into the world and into him and he became a sinner in a sense, defined by his sin, but for the grace of God. And because we came from him, we have inherited, we're born into sin. It's called original sin. We're born into that curse and we are opposed to God in our sin and wanting to rule our own lives. Um, so we are represented in Adam when we're born. All mankind, Paul says in verses 21 and 22. When Christ came along, he became the second man in history. Adam just means man. He became the second man the second head of a new race that would be free from the, not free, not, not sinning, because we still sin, but free from the power of sin, free from the power of death. No longer represented by Adam, but if we trust in Christ, represented by the second Adam, the second man. Okay, so in a sense, Paul's, Paul's um, ethnic view of everything is, in a, if I can use that word in this sense, very simple. It's you're either in, there are two races. You're either in Adam, represented in him, born into him or in the second Adam, okay? Represented in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, uh, having paid the penalty, penalty for death and having risen as proof. Um, and you will go the way that he goes if you have believed in him and if you trust in him, okay? That's what Paul is saying. So Christ is the first fruit, he uses this language, of a bumper crop. He's the first fruit in his resurrection of a new harvest. So I, I puzzled over this for years as a Christian because Christ raised people from the dead before. He wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. So why, what's the big deal about his resurrection? I've talked about that some, but the fact is it was totally different because there was no one that had ever risen from the dead that had not died again. Everyone that had risen from the dead before went on to die. Christ rose to a new life impervious to death. And he, and no one else had risen from the dead had died representing anyone who would look to him and had risen from the dead also representing victory over death for anyone who looks to him. Christ did. He, died, he rose as a representative. His rising is proof that you will go that way too. Never bodily to die again. Never. Um, let me just read this. It's a little bit of a block quote, but I think it's worthwhile. The gospel is not just, hear the word just, the gospel is not just new life for you. 
and peace with God. It is that. Freedom from sin, life in God the Father, reconciled to him by the blood of Christ. Yes, it is. New life for you. Yes, it is. Not just, though. Listen to this quote. Rooted in Old Testament expectations, the gospel is then not to be limited to personal renewal or subjective individual redemption. It must be construed in the widest possible terms as conveying God's intention to bring about a new world order in Jesus. Did you get that? Look at Colossians 1.20 in its wider context. This gospel assumes a cosmic dimension, including not only the present redemption of the creature, but also the prospective redemption, listen to this, of the creation itself. Everything that's wrong will be made right. Everything will be restored. And how does that happen? We sang about it earlier. Paul talked to us about it earlier in the liturgy that preceded this sermon. It happens in the same way that Christ began the process of renewal, like a seed. And that's where we're going in our last point. What does it look like? It looks like a seed dying in the ground. As we carry our crosses, knowing that Christ has accomplished all, but he continues to work his redemption, his resurrection, his new creation power through the economy of the cross. As we let go of our, George MacDonald called them, rag rights. Our perceived rights, we let go of them because guess what? God has given me everything I need in Christ. He secured it all. And he works specially through the economy of the cross as I let go of my rights for the sake of Christ Jesus. And as I surrender to him and I serve and I give, and I worship through that dead acorn in the ground, something huge and beautiful and strong begins to grow. And here's the thing, and here's what Martin Luther said in his quip about uh, what would you do if you knew Christ was returning tomorrow? Um, it will never stop growing. What, that dead seed in the ground, with, through your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ and in the new creation that's coming and that is working even now, through your sacrifices because of his sacrifice, that deposit will yield an eternal investment. What's done for you, for your kingdom here now, grasping, that will go away. It will be futile and empty and it will have zero return, zero. But what you do by faith in what Christ has done and who you are in him for his kingdom, with faith in the fact that that new new creation's coming and his Holy Spirit in me is proof, it's the deposit, it's the house keys, it will grow and grow. It will take root. It will grow up. It will put out branches. It will be oaks of righteousness from a dead seed, but the seed has to die first. How, how much good is an acorn in the ground that holds on to its rights? What does that do? It does nothing. There's literally zero life that comes from that. But again, I, if I, I feel like I say this more than anything else except for the gospel when I preach, but if that acorn will but release by faith, can I say an acorn? Okay, it's you, right? By faith in Christ, what he's done and what he's doing now. The fact that he's reigning, he's going to return. The bodily resurrection is real. You will never die. You will explore and adventure and rule and reign and serve and worship and commune and feast forever. Hey, there's gonna be a party. I wanna say one of the things we're given at the end of the Bible is we're given another marriage that's like marriage in this life is just a picture of the marriage to come and then a wedding feast. And I was gonna say that what we're given as a picture of what's to come in the new creation is a party to end all parties, but really it's a party to start all parties. Because hey, the party's not gonna end. The party's not gonna end. It's like C.S. Lewis says in the last of his Chronicles of Narnia. He says, hey, in this story, can I just change metaphors from party to story? In this story, it's a story where we're only given, Jesus says in Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible, he talks about all of human history, including creation all the way till, till 
Revelation 21, the future, somewhere in the future, when Christ returns. He says, all that, that's the first things. Jesus says, the first things have passed. Now we're going to get this party started, okay? And Jesus says, excuse me, and Jesus, the fact that I called C.S. Lewis Jesus, that might say a little more than I'm wanting to admit. Let's just erase that part from the recording. Forgive me, Lord. Uh, Lewis is chuckling right now in heaven, uh, waiting to be glorified. But he says, he says, man, all the stuff, all of human history, not just what you've experienced in this life and what you will experience till you die, but all human history, it'll be, have been like the cover and the title page of a book. Just the first things. And in the life to come, in the new creation, not sitting around disembodied playing harps on clouds, that's Gary Larson. That's not Bible. Bible, Bible is what Augustine said. Bible is, there is no good thing that will not remain. It's all just an acorn. If there's a good thing, and I'm gonna probably basically pause, I'm gonna basically finish here for the sake of time, and we got next week too, so I can just keep rolling with whatever's here and then finish the text. But um, whatever good thing you taste now, and you wanna, you don't have to grab the gusto. You don't have to try to take it and possess it and hold on to it because that's just an acorn, friend. That's what Paul says. All that stuff that he says in uh, what, verse 35 through 48 that Austin read, it's essentially boiled down to, it's a seed, it's an acorn. And if we surrender it, don't hold on to it, know that it's good and know that it's a deposit of so much more that's coming. You can just let it be an arrow that shoots you forward to the blessed hope that we have in Christ Jesus. You don't have to hold on to it. You don't have to cry to grab the gusto, build your kingdom. Man, he's building it through your letting go. It's an acorn. The oak tree's coming. The forest is coming. There's enough power in that acorn if it dies to reforest the planet. Man, if 10 of us got that, if the penny dropped on this truth, I'm not even gonna say message, on this truth from God, a little more in half of you, 10 of you, I truly believe this area, God would change this area through you because it is a powerful realization and it's, the, and it's the power of the risen Christ that works his resurrection power in, out in you to remake, to see people and their environments and cultures, their workplaces, their neighborhoods, everything they touch remade. You see, remade. Let it be amen and amen. And that's essentially what it looks like and that is where I am going to close because we're just gonna keep going next week. So let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that is so good and it's so true because it takes us right to Jesus who is the word and he's, he's the thing, the person, the king, the savior, the redeemer, the lover, the husband that all this perfect written word points to takes us to. Lord God, he embodies it. And, and uh, this table takes us there too, Lord. And so we just, um, we thank you for the fact that without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, literally everything we do from this point moving forward in life matters not at all. It's vain, it's empty, it's pointless. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let us live how we want to. Let us despair and be hopeless if we're thinkers. But because Christ was raised and rose bodily from the dead. Everything has meaning. Everything. Everything. There is a holiday at the sea that is coming. There is a feast that is coming. When we see you, Jesus, 
face to face, we shall be made like you and the party will start in earnest. But we get tastes of that now and we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray as Austin prayed earlier before I started that if there is anyone here that has not come to table through your finished work, through your broken body and through your shed blood on the cross and through your validating resurrection from the dead, that this would be the last day that they remain outside the kingdom, that this would be the last day they remain outside the body, outside the family, that they would stop trying in their own strength and just come to you because you were broken for them, because your arms are wide open with holes in your hands saying, come on, friend, come on and feast on me. Lord, Lord, would you just, for all of us who believe, for those of us who have not yet believed, bring us to table. Draw us in through the finished work of Christ, through his resurrection, through his reign, and through his imminent return. And make our lives deposits, acorns that go into the ground and just open up and die with great joy. Lord God, we love you so much. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen.